Well, we are back in the book of Genesis this morning. Uh, over the last year, we have bounced between Matthew in the New Testament and Genesis in the Old Testament. And for the rest of the fall, we will set Matthew aside for now, and we will look to finish the book of Genesis. So turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. That's where we left off after 36 some months ago. Now, before I read our passage for today, let me just point your attention to a tiny sentence in verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. That's a familiar phrase if you've been studying Genesis with us. These are the generations. Ten times total in Genesis, we find that phrase, these are the generations followed by stories about those people, those generations. And these are the mile markers for the literary structure of the book of Genesis. That's why we stopped where we did and why we're picking up where we are today. This last section, this last, this, or these are the generations, a, a word in the Hebrew, toledot. This last one marks out the longest section by far with 14 chapters left in Genesis 37 to 50. It's the story of the sons of Jacob. It's the story of the sons of Jacob told primarily through the lens of one of those sons, Joseph. So Genesis 37 gives us the first leg, the first act of these brothers, the sons of Jacob. Look down in your Bibles as I read the chapter for us. I'll read the whole chapter. It'll take about five minutes, but it'll be good for us to see the big picture up front. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture the father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. 
So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will come of his dreams." But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite leaders, traders, passed by. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many, day, many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus the father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Well, notice right up front the geographic significance of this chapter, especially as it moves from beginning to end. Verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. That is the land. That's the land promised to Abraham and his offspring back in Genesis 12 and again in 15 and again in 17 and then repeated again and again to the subsequent generations. In our earlier studies of Genesis, we've been occasionally keeping track of the geographic movements and noting when God's people are in the land or out of the land or back in the land. And here, they're clearly 
in the land. They don't fully possess it yet. That won't come until the days of Joshua. They're sojourners, but they're in it. God's promises so far are holding true. The plan is advancing, even if at a snail's pace. But where does the chapter end? The Midianites sold Joseph to Potiphar's house in Egypt. The favored son was sold, taken, enslaved to foreigners. He's gone hundreds of miles away from the promised land and from the family of promise. Isn't it so typical of the storyline of Genesis that just when you think, ah, progress, fulfillment, then a screeching halt. There is a problem. There is regress. At least so it seems. And how that apparent regression happens in our chapter between verse 1 and verse 36 is even more breathtaking. The brothers' betrayal, enslavement, deception, presumed death, a father grieving. It raises the question of what is going on here in the plan of God? What is God up to here? Where is God here? Did you happen to notice that God is not mentioned anywhere in the whole chapter? He's not on anyone's lips. He's not on the lips of the narrator. Where is he? Does he not see? Does he not care? Is he not involved? Well, that's what we want to know in the end of our time together this morning. That's what we need answered eventually. But to get there, we'll work our way through the passage under four headings. Four headings. Here's the first. Family tensions. Family tensions. That's what we see in the first 11 verses of our chapter. And there are several family dynamics or really family dysfunctions that are going on, starting with Joseph's tattling. 17-year-old Joseph was shepherding with four of his brothers one day when they returned and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, sometimes telling mom and dad what a sibling has done, well, it's the right thing to do. It's even the loving thing to do. Sometimes you got to do it. Sometimes. And sometimes a report to mom and dad can be petty. It can come simply out of a desire to get a sibling in trouble. It can sometimes be exaggerated or even completely false. And it appears that that's what Joseph was doing here, not the former, but the latter. The two Hebrew words behind our English words, bad report, are always negative. Elsewhere in the Bible, they're always an exaggeration or a falsehood. And that's what Joseph was doing. Now, Joseph will prove to be a godly guy in the end. In fact, he's actually one of the brightest shining lights among all the pretty flawed figures in the book of Genesis. 
But here, we're reminded that he wasn't perfect, he wasn't sinless, and at 17, he could be a bit of a brat, a tattler. And then you add to the mix Jacob's favoritism of Joseph. Verse 3, Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. And this is far from the first time we've seen favoritism in the book of Genesis. Do you remember that Jacob was once somebody's favorite back when he was a kid? His mom, Rebecca, favored Jacob, while dad, Isaac, favored Esau. And you fast forward to the grown-up Jacob, and we find him with two wives. He loves one, not the other. And with both the wives and the sons, Genesis shows that favoritism in families causes big problems. Jacob should know that. Parents, you should take note of it. I'm sure we all joke at times about which kid is our favorite right now. You know, you might elbow your wife about which one you like the most. Wink, wink. I know you can't have favorites. I know that there are times when this kid's more aggravating than that kid, or you're proud about this thing with this kid and, and, and maybe concerned about this thing with another kid. That, that's all normal. But hopefully you can see here, there's a kind of favoritism that just ruins a family. Those who aren't favored feel hated, and they despise the one who is favored. Jacob's favoritism isn't subtle or suppressed. It's just out in the open. It's known. It's even celebrated and flaunted. And so he makes for his son a special robe, a robe of many colors, most of our translations say. The Hebrew can mean robe with long sleeves. But regardless, it was likely both long and colorful. It wasn't just a nice robe. It wasn't just fancy digs, you know, fancy threads. Now, this would have been a status symbol. It was the sign that the mantle of the family was being passed in the next generation to Joseph specifically, not his brothers. It even carried the significance of royalty. The second to last born at age 17 wears the princely status and he flaunts it. And how did the brothers respond? Verse 4, they hated him. They couldn't speak peacefully to him. And then you add to the mix these dreams, Joseph's dreams. Now, as we'll see in upcoming chapters of Genesis, these were divinely given dreams. They will indeed come true. And whether Joseph needed to tell his brothers about these dreams It's not clear. I'd say probably not. Certainly not a second time. Nevertheless, he did. There's dream one in verse seven. It's a dream about the sheaves. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field in this dream. And and my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to mine. 
And the brothers rightly get the implication here. Are you saying you're going to reign over us? That we're going to bow to you one day? That's dream one, the sheaths. Then there's dream two. Take it up a notch. Stars. Behold, verse 9, the sun, moon, and 11 stars were all bowing down to me. Now there's specificity. 11 stars like 11 brothers. But more than that, there's also the sun and the moon like mother and father. They're also bowing down. Now again, all this will happen. You can find it in Genesis 42 and 47 if you want to read those later. So these are no ordinary dreams. These are prophetic. In the Bible, there are these pockets or seasons when God seems to more often reveal himself by way of dream. It's in Daniel. It's in the book of Acts a few times. And we're now in a pocket of Genesis where dreams play a significant role. In fact, what we see in the rest of Genesis are three sets of pairs of dreams. Two dreams, two dreams, two dreams. This is one of those pairs in Genesis 37. A pair of dreams which basically have the same message to them. And in another set of pairs of dreams, later on in Genesis 41... Joseph is explaining to Pharaoh the significance of these double dreams. And he says, get this, chapter 41, verse 32. The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means the thing is fixed by God. So the doubling of the dream means that it wasn't just late night pizza. The doubling of the dream means that this is from God and it is certain. Now, not all dreams are from God. They're not a sign, even if you dream it twice, even if you dream it ten times. In fact, it is a very dangerous thing to think that this or that dream means this or that, and it's a sign from God. God can reveal himself like that. God has revealed himself like that. God sometimes does reveal himself like that. It's not uncommon to hear of Muslim conversions being preceded by a dream of Jesus that would then lead to the hearing of the gospel and believing. But don't you go thinking that last night's dream about a fish means you should marry Susie. <laughs> you might need to marry Susie. But that dream may not be anything about that. Don't put words in God's mouth thinking that this experience in Genesis is normative. But Joseph's dreams were indeed from God. The doubling of the thing means it is fixed. Joseph seemed to believe that, even though no one in his family did. His father Jacob Verse 10, rebuked him and said, shall I and your mother bow before you? I mean, you're my favorite son, sure, but don't let this thing go to your head. You're wearing that robe an awful lot, son. Don't think that one day you're going to be Lord over your old man. Will you? Might you? 
Verse 11. His father kept the saying in mind. (laughs) He tucked it away. I mean, after all, Jacob was God's chosen man in his generation, even though he wasn't the firstborn in the family. I mean, backing up to the beginning of Genesis, God favored Abel's sacrifice over Cain's, despite Abel being the younger, not the older. God moves in mysterious ways. God moves in seemingly upside-down ways. And so Jacob, on the one hand, can say, don't be ridiculous, Joseph. And on the other, he can say, "Hmm, let's tuck this away. Like Mary, who treasured up all these things in her heart, all those strange circumstances surrounding the birth of her son, Jesus. The brothers would do no such thing. They're not interested in tucking it away, except to tuck it away for resentment and hatred. There's a growing hatred. The word hate is used three times. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 8. It's hated, hated even more, hated even more. And then verse 11, they were jealous of him. And if it sounds like jealous is a softer word than hate, actually in the Hebrew it's not. That's the hardest one of them all. This is, this is jealous like, uh, like when a, a man's wife is defiled and he's thinking about killing the other man. So this is getting bad. This is a dysfunctional family. Favoritism, tattling, the symbolic robe, the dreams, the growing hatred and jealousy, and it's all about to get worse. And by the way, don't forget, this is the family at this time that God has set his love upon and purposed to work through and to covenant with. This family, this messed up family. God can use messed up families and messed up individuals, just like yours. Secondly, we see heinous schemes. Heinous schemes by the brothers. We've got a bit of a prelude to that fateful day in verses 12 to 17. I'll just summarize it. Dad sent 11 boys out to pasture the flocks. And since they went all the way to Shechem, 50 miles away from Hebron, he sends Joseph to check on them. Joseph gets to Shechem. They're not there. He learns that they went to Dothan, another 13 miles away. So they're now 63 miles away from home. And at Dothan, The brothers, verse 18, see Joseph coming from afar. And they know it's him because of that ridiculous robe that they have come to hate. Here comes the dreamer, they say. And they conspire to kill him. Verse 19, let us kill him and throw him into a pit. Their hatred and jealousy had turned so bitter that someone could out loud say, why don't we kill Brother Joseph? Let's kill him and cover it up and lie to Dad. This is their brother. This is Mom's son, Dad's son. They say, verse 21, we will see what will come of his dreams. 
Realize how bad that is. I mean, if his dreams are really from God, then this is blasphemy. They are resisting God. This is Psalm 2 kind of stuff. Conspiring against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, how, how does it get this bad? How do people get this bad? Well, not all at once. It begins with resentment and anger. And it probably grows with gossip and jealousy, envy, hatred, more hatred, more hatred. It probably involves some level of group think to get to this point, doesn't it? Kids, don't go along with bad guys and girls when they're going astray. Memorize Proverbs 1.10. Memorize it today. You can. When sinners entice you, do not consent. When sinners entice you, do not consent. Say it with me out loud. When sinners entice you, do not consent. Well, don't consent. Or intervene if you can. That's what Reuben did. Or kind of did. Reuben, verse 21, says, let's not take his life. Verse 22, let's just throw him into a pit. Reuben, the eldest son... Remember back in chapter 35, he was the one who defiled his father's concubine. As a result, he lost his birthright. Well, now, perhaps as an attempt to get back into dad's good graces, he proposes the brothers not kill Joseph, just throw him into a pit and it seems, as we piece this together, it seems that his hope is that he'll come back later, perhaps when the brothers aren't there, and he'll rescue Joseph from the pit, and he'll return him to his father, no doubt with reward. Well, the first half of his plan works. Verse 23, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors. They took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. In these days, there would just be various pits, like, well, kind of like you see washing machines on the mesa. But we, you know, have you ever been out there? Get yourself a dune buggy and just go look. Well, the way we have washing machines out on the mesa, there were just various pits in these days in this space. And they were used for garbage dumping. They were used for water storing. And this one was a water pit, maybe 12 feet across, maybe 15 feet deep. And thankfully, there's no water in it, so Joseph wouldn't drown, but he couldn't get out. So there he lay in the pit, roughed up, no doubt, stripped of his royal robe, 65 miles away from home, no one to rescue him, no way to get out. And what did his brothers do next? They got out some food and ate. Verse 25. Then they sat down to eat. This is cold-blooded. I mean, these are sin-calloused men. 
In fact, we know from later on in Genesis, as these brothers later finally come to repentance about this, some 20 years later, they acknowledge. In Genesis 42, verse 21, they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. He's begging from the pit as they take another bite of the sandwich. Oh, it's just then that Judah has a better idea. He sees Ishmaelites also known as Midianites. Apparently, the, the two clans had intermarried in these days. That's why those two names are used interchangeably. They were slave traders, marauders, exchangers of goods. And they were passing through right then. And so they decide to sell J Joseph, their brother, to these pagan marauders and slave traders for 20 pieces of silver, not knowing where they'll take him, not knowing what they'll do to him, not knowing what his outcome will be. Later, Reuben returns to the pit. Remember his plan. He apparently was tending the sheep elsewhere for a bit, or perhaps he just intended to kind of slip away so that he can come back and get Joseph but he returns to an empty pit, Joseph is gone. The eldest son would have borne the greatest responsibility for everyone's welfare, but now dad's favored son is gone. It isn't clear whether Reuben is in on the deception that follows or not, but that's what follows, deception. Third, there's familiar deception. The brothers concoct a plan to explain away Joseph's disappearance to their father. They took Joseph's robe, they put blood on it. They sent the robe back to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Do you, do you see how sneaky and shady this is? It's not only deceptive. They're even playing dumb about it. Oh, is this Joseph's robe? We found it somewhere. I mean, uh, it looked familiar, but I didn't know if it was actually his robe. Can you figure out what happened here, Father? Oh, killed by an animal, you say? Well, yes, if you say so. Jacob himself ever the deceiver was once deceived once deceived his own dad remember that that's why i call this familiar deception because back in genesis 27 jacob deceived his father pretending to be hairy esau by dressing up in goat hair it's eerily similar but here despite his trickery of the past here he's none the wiser he is deceived and so he grieves. A week of grief was customary in these days when a loved one died. When it was a remarkable figure who died like Moses, the people grieved for a whole month. But Jacob resolves to grieve his son's death until his dying day. All his sons and daughters, verse 35, tried to comfort him, but to no avail. 
The sons tried to comfort him. What a sham. What a charade. To keep this up over years, over decades, to maintain that lie, to keep the story straight among the 11, for all the brothers to stick to the script for that long, that's messed up. And don't forget about Joseph. Almost like split screens on a TV show. Meanwhile, verse 36, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Joseph began that day as the favored son and the prince. And by the end, he was bloodied, betrayed, handed over to foreigners and enslaved and he is now on his way to Egypt, hundreds of miles away from family and home, to a people whose language he does not know, to a destiny that seems quite uncertain. We noted earlier that there is no mention of God in Genesis 37. Where is he? What is he up to? Has he disappeared? Does he not see? Does he not care? Where was God that day in Dothan. I have a fourth point for you. Three from the text. One, not really in the text. It's sort of a cat scan of the text. I'll tell you what I mean. We can call this fourth God's hidden hand. His hidden hand. Dothan, interesting place. It's mentioned only one other time elsewhere in the Bible. It's 2 Kings chapter 6. And there the prophet Elijah was being encircled by the Syrian army. It was just the prophet Elijah and his right-hand man, his assistant. And they were the target of the mighty Syrian army. The servant asks the prophet, what shall we do? Elijah says, fear not. For those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And then Elijah prayed that God would open the eyes of his servant so that he could see what God had already revealed to Elijah. And then we read, So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. This is the hidden hand of God. Now, very rarely, but sometimes in Scripture, God peels back the curtain so that his servants can actually see the unseen. That's 2 Kings 6. But most often, we're left to just trust to walk by faith and not by sight, to trust that God is present, active and wise and purposeful, even when it seems like he's absent and aloof. In the case of the Joseph story, thankfully we can read on. We can read ahead. We can see what happens next. And we should. We live in an age of Spoiler alerts, right? It's polite when you're 
about to give away a plot or an ending to a movie that you say to a friend, spoiler alert, and they can either you know, plug their ears, run away, do something. You're not supposed to tell people that Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. Oops. But the Bible doesn't really have that concern. It doesn't really hold back the good part just for the suspense. Haven't we been seeing that in Matthew? Isn't that the case in every gospel account? They all end the same. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. But the writing on the wall is there from the beginning. On almost every page of those four Gospels, there's a hint that Jesus will be opposed and rejected, betrayed, and killed. And besides, the Bible's stories were meant not just to be read once and then put on a shelf, but they were meant to be reread and reread and reread. And we're supposed to read one part of the story, if we know what's ahead, with the end of the story in view up front. So most of us have already read the rest of Genesis. You're, you're familiar with the Joseph story. You know where this is going. You don't have to pretend like you don't know. If you don't know, well, spoiler alert, <laughs> let me give you some highlights. Here's what's coming. God will move this same enslaved Joseph over the next 20 years from slavery to being second in command in Egypt. During that time, a famine will come and God will lead Joseph to prepare for the famine in advance so that Egypt becomes the world's storehouse of food in a time of famine. God from the beginning, intended for Joseph to go to Egypt. That's the plan. He used him to, to go there, to be there, and to serve like he did. God was orchestrating a plan for Joseph to be a blessing to the nations, like God promised Abraham long ago. God was orchestrating a plan for Joseph to be the preserver of the messianic line so that it didn't die out. And so this is what Joseph tells his brothers 20 years later when the covenant family has survived precisely because Joseph was in Egypt. What does he say? Chapter 45, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Or as he'll more succinctly and more famously say in chapter 50, verse 20, you, my brothers, meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's the CAT scan, the X-ray of what's going on in Genesis 37. And yes, the brothers were responsible for their heinous sin. Genesis 50, 20 doesn't minimize that. But God uses even the heinous sin of the brothers to bring about these many good things. 
God doesn't do evil himself, but he's not threatened by any evil in the least. And you can't see that in Genesis 37 as Joseph is led away in chains and Jacob weeps. It's too soon to see it, but as we read it, we can know it. We know the rest of the story. We have Genesis 38 to 50. Praise God. And guess what? That's just the first book of the Bible. The story keeps going from there. We know the story. We know that eventually we get to another Joseph-like figure who just typifies all this. Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, had to be preserved in the last section of Genesis so that eventually we'd come to the true and final forever king. The, the one offspring, the singular offspring, Jesus. But we see foreshadows of how God saves even back in the Joseph story. Because like Joseph, Jesus was rejected by his brothers, stripped of his robe, sold for silver, and handed over to the Gentiles. Jesus, like Joseph, was sent by God through a path of great suffering to exaltation in order to rescue and forgive sinners like you and me. And we will see several more parallels between Joseph and Jesus in the weeks ahead. I don't want to ruin all the surprises this week. But it was all according to plan, both for G Joseph and for Jesus. So much is made of this in Acts 2 and Acts 4. When Peter preaches in Acts 2, he says this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, him who you killed. In Acts 4, the disciples prayed, truly in this city. They conspired against your holy servant Jesus. Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles all together with the people of Israel. Get this, though, it was to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It's all according to plan. And if you're not yet a Christian, if you don't believe in a sovereign, good, and wise God, I just wonder, what's your outlook on circumstances and events in this world? Is it just fatalism? Well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. That's it. Is it karma? What goes around comes around. That's it. Or, mysteriously, mind-blowing as it is, there is a sovereign God in heaven who rules over the affairs of men. And he will bring justice to evil while he brings salvation to a people who believe in him. And he will work all things together for their good. And he has done this supremely Here's how we know it's going to be good for us because of what Jesus did upon that cross and in his resurrection. And so they can say in Acts 4 as well, they can say this, there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name by which we must be saved. Would you be saved by this Jesus today and be reconciled to the Father? If you've come to believe that already, well then, God's 
hidden hand is active in your life. He is no less involved in your crazy, topsy-turvy, messed-up life than he was in the life of Joseph or even his son, Jesus. Didn't we just see that in Matthew? Not one hair falls to the ground apart from his will. He cares for sparrows, so he'll care for you. I know, we don't have it all at once. We, we live day to day, don't we? We can't just fast forward to the end. We can't read ahead in our own lives. That's how it was for Joseph as he lived this out. He had to trust that God was with him and had purposes for it all, even though he couldn't see it yet. He couldn't see it until he saw it. But he had to go through it. And you and I are going through it. And as we go through it, we look back to Joseph. We find fresh encouragement there. We look back to Jesus, not only as our salvation, but also as this perfect example of God's sovereignty over the most evil ever done in this world, the crucifixion of the Son of God, but for a purpose, for our salvation. We keep going back to those hallmark verses of the New Testament, like Romans 8, 28. All things work together for our good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things are working together for good. Say it over and over. Tell it to yourself. Believe it to be true. Put James 1, 2 in your pocket. Consider it pure joy, brothers, when you go into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith is working patience. Let patience have its perfect work. Oh, keep growing in your knowledge of this sovereign God. Keep reading good theology like that which you find in the old Westminster Confession about the providence of God. It says this. Let this blow your mind. God, the great creator of all things, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Take that into the doctor's office as you await the diagnosis. And, and keep, church, just keep meeting like this. Let's just come back next Sunday and the next. Let's keep walking through life's trials together. Keep singing of truths like this, that God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storms. And let's together look ahead. Let's look ahead to that final day when all that is hidden will be revealed, when all that is mysterious will, will be seen we may not know what's next in our lives, but we know the end. We know the end. We may not know what's next in the story of our lives, but we know how the story ends. Let's live like it. Let's pray.
Oh, Lord, we thank you for your wonderful, mysterious ways and your kind and gracious, good purposes to not only save a people, but to orchestrate events in their lives for their eternal good. Oh, even painful ones, Lord. Help us to trust you. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Because of Jesus, we pray. Amen.